Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When I talked to the epidemiologist Michael Osterholm back in May, he said his work on coronavirus had come home, and it was painful. I'm at the forefront of this. I have not seen my five grandchildren in person since March 10th. All I do is on 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 FaceTime and Zoom. You know, that's great to do that, but it's horrible. I miss it desperately. When I talked to Osterholm again in July, things had changed. I did see them for Father's Day, one of the best days of my life. I, I, I cried more tears than I can tell you, and I hugged every one of them, and I gave them a kiss, and then I backed away, and I was with them for less than a minute in the close contact setting. And I believe from our work that that was a safe move. Many of us have inched forward, but still, life feels balanced on a knife's edge. Whether you're a chef who doesn't know what cold weather is going to mean for her restaurant, or a dad who's glad to be back at work, but whose kids aren't back to in-person classes, whether you're a grandparent who's waiting to really spend some time with family, or a young person wanting to date again. It's been more than six months that we've lived in a pandemic-ridden world, and at some point you start to ask, well, where does it all go from here? But I don't see this disappearing the way SARS-1 did. That's Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, speaking this summer. The reason I say that is that it is so efficient in its, its ability to transmit from human to human that I think we ultimately will get control of it. I don't really see us eradicating it. Today, we'll examine the long-term consequences of a virus which isn't on the verge of dying out, and for which a vaccine that's 90% or more effective, like we've got for the measles, for mumps, that does not appear to be something we're all going to receive in the next few months, if ever. I believe that the parameters for opening should actually be looser now than they were when we didn't know anything about the virus and we, when, we, when we didn't have the resilience in our hospitals and with our frontline workers. The political scientist and international risk consultant Ian Bremmer is going to guide us through the politics of the moment and the global economic consequences that we're facing. Bremmer says we may be about to enter a reality in which, as life resumes, it becomes increasingly polarized. While many people won't feel comfortable traveling, for example, some of the wealthy will travel with the aid of rapid testing. They will be able to make business trips and close deals while their kids are busy at full-time, in-person private schools. So if you thought you lived in a society with big divisions before, get ready. There will be a percentage of the global population that will be able to do their jobs just like the NBA. And they'll be able to interact with other people in places where that is important for them to do so. But first, that question of the long term and what it holds for the virus. Since March, I have pretty much exclusively covered COVID. Um, that's pretty much all science journalists. We have, uh, that has been our job. Megan Scudamari writes about science in journals like Nature, which aim to give scientists themselves a sense of what their colleagues are thinking. Scudamari has spent much of the last few months talking to experts around the globe to get a view that's not limited by how things are going in any particular country. 
And it started really out on a country by country basis because every country looked so dramatically different and it still does um, to look at what are these folks predicting for the future, both in the terms of containing the spread and how long this could last. And it's going to last a long time. So why is this novel coronavirus going to be something that we live with rather than something we get to wave goodbye to? Well, Scudamari says that when she talked to various experts, there were disagreements, but they came together on two things. One, um, we have not just weathered a storm. This was not a tsunami that hit us and then is kind of going to fade away that we are in this for the long haul. I think like four different researchers use the words long haul to me repeatedly. And then the second thing is that the future, as all of them look to the future, they can model till they're exhausted, but it's hard to model human behavior. And that's what the future is going to depend on. Part of the reason that COVID is just a new part of our world is that we have no idea how long human immunity to the virus lasts. And your immunity could come from you having gotten infected, or it could come from a vaccine, which, if one is judged to be effective, may have to be administered over time with multiple doses. Megan Scudamari says that scientists see four possible scenarios when it comes to immunity. And even though there have been reports here and there about people being reinfected, she says we need large data sets, not anecdotes. So... Like I said, there are four options for immunity. Option one. So best case scenario is that once you're infected or you get a vaccine, you're protected for life. So that's still possible. You know, we don't know yet. But even in that case scenario, the best case, it doesn't mean the second there's a vaccine, say there's a vaccine that completes a phase three, this big safety trial in December or January, that doesn't mean you're going to get, I'm going to get, you're going to get, anybody's going to get the vaccine that week or that month. Um, there still has to be manufacturing of the vaccine, distribution of the vaccine. It's first going to go to people who are at high risk, who are advanced age or have underlying conditions, then to healthcare workers. And some of the scientists that I've talked to, you hear these echoes of worries about vaccine hoarding, about international deal-making, about supply chain issues. And in places like the U.S., the anti-vaccination movement, like, will people even get the vaccine? So that's option one. Immunity lasts for life. Okay, option two. So the next scenario is sort of if a vaccine or infection gives you kind of long-term but not permanent immunity. So say like two years, which is what we think the immunity for SARS, which is the virus that's very closely related to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID. So in that case, if you're protected for about two years, in theory, one of the models predicts a bunch of people could get infected now. And then in two years, there could be another big comeback. When will we know if there's going to be another wave in two years? Probably, Scudelari says, in two years. It's just hard to peer into the future and no. So then, next scenario, if it's even shorter immunity, so the other human coronaviruses, there are other human coronaviruses that cause basically just the common cold. And we know from those viruses, their immunity is about 40 weeks, so less than a year. The Harvard team suggests that if the immunity for SARS-CoV-2 is short-term, like these other human coronaviruses, people could become reinfected within a year, and there could be annual outbreaks like the flu. So the options so far, 
you get COVID and you never get it again. Or you get it and you're at risk of getting it again in a couple of years. Or you get it and you're at risk of getting it again in just one year. Or, and this is the last option, there's no immunity at all. So if there's no immunity, if you can get the virus and then again become infected right away, in that case, we'll see regular extensive circulation of the virus and it could become endemic. And we do have precedent for that. Malaria is an endemic infectious disease. It kills hundreds of thousands of people a year. We even do have treatments for it and still it persists. So it it will take a, in that case, a heroic effort and some very great drugs that are very effective and distributed well to control the virus. Scientists that Scudamari interviewed from around the world agreed that that last option, it's not really on the table. As she noted, we've got other coronaviruses circulating, which we know more about, and there is some human immunity to those. One finding that surprised scientists was how much our behavior has already changed and the fact that good public health practices can help slow the spread dramatically. So that, to me, was one of the most interesting things I found when reporting this story, because, you know, without a vaccine or a great drug to contain the virus, how many people, what percentage of people in a population need to social distance and wear their masks and wash their hands and not kiss and hug their neighbors in order to reduce the spread? And what I found so fascinating is these really promising results. So in Brazil, it was like 50 to 60 percent. In Mexico, it was 70 percent. Those are percentages of people you would need to adhere to these guidelines to actually see outbreaks start to decline. And some of that change is already happening, which may explain why New York City, for example, which people initially thought was an optimal place for coronavirus to spread, it's been so successful at keeping infections low for so long. And Hong Kong is very similar. Hong Kong is a huge city, and they have done a amazing job uh, keeping COVID under control. Of course, they have much more strict tracking of their citizens um, that would bring up privacy issues here in the United States. But the fact that some cities like that, yes, are it is just straight up behavior and some tracing that has enabled keeping a second outbreak from occurring. Those sorts of behavioral effects offer a real silver lining, especially if, as you heard Anthony Fauci say earlier, this new coronavirus may be with us permanently. I mean, there could be still good treatments, so it's it doesn't kill that many people, but that it does stick around and eventually becomes part of our lives, just like the flu, in that there is a vaccine you have to take every six months or every year. And if people don't take the vaccine, that there could be outbreaks occasionally. So yes, this could absolutely become part of our lives. I mean, I had um, one researcher say to me, like, you know, COVID-19 is here to stay. It's not just going to disappear. So let's talk then about how we're doing living with it. Ian Bremmer is a political scientist and an international risk consultant who we check in with every now and again for his take on politics, the economy, and the international consequences of what we see around us. He's the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media, and he says there are lots of ways that the U.S. has failed in responding to coronavirus, but there's one big way in which we, for a time at least, succeeded financial support. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi came together in the spring to craft a $2 trillion deal to support people who were hurting and their families. 
but his benefits expired and a follow-up package failed to materialize, Bremer says he started to see trouble ahead. And so I think this is going to get an awful lot worse. I, I don't think, even if we've already experienced, I hope, the worst of the actual hospitalizations and deaths from coronavirus, and that's an open question, mm-hmm. but I'm feeling more confident about that, and we can talk about that if you like. But economically, I don't think we've come close to feeling the depth of this, and that's because there's been a lot of Band-Aids provided by the U.S. government, by other governments around the world. The economic response to this crisis, even though it hasn't been coordinated, has generally been pretty robust. And that's going to run out in a lot of countries, including our own. See, that's interesting to me because one of the things we have seen since the beginning of the pandemic is, except for an initial kind of falling off a cliff moment, the stock market has done remarkably well. Obviously, there are up days and down days, but but it's done remarkably well. How do you square that with... All this news that's, you know, so many restaurants, so many stores, so many places may never be able to uh, reopen. It's just there, it feels like a dissonance that's always hard to wrap my mind around. Well, the, the central bank, our Fed, uh, has provided immense amounts of, of you know, liquidity. Uh, monetary policy has been really, really loose. And I'll tell you, as much as this country is divided right now, as much as it is really hard to find anti-Trump folk that will say anything good about anything Trump does. I speak to most of the lead economic minds on the Democratic side of the aisle. Larry Summers is a good friend, Jack Lew, for example, Peter Orzak, all these guys. They will all tell you publicly, they'll tell you that Jay Powell is doing a fantastic job. The chairman of the Federal Reserve. Trump appointed chairman of the Fed. I was talking just the other day with Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank. Everyone says she's doing a fantastic job. The central bankers have been providing as much ammunition, monetary policy, as possibly they can give. And that's made an enormous difference in terms of confidence for the markets. That doesn't change the fact that the vast majority of Americans don't have their well-being affected Mm -hmm. by the stock market. They certainly certainly don't own shares. Right. And the reality is uh, that the, the knowledge economy, I mean, in the United States in particular, I mean, our biggest companies, the one that make up the largest share of of the Dow, they're doing very well right now. I mean, whether it's Microsoft or Google or Facebook or Amazon, I mean, these are Apple. These are incredibly powerful companies. They're very innovative and they're making money hand over fist in an environment where we're all relying on them. And the workers for those economies have the ability to work from home. In many cases, they're not planning on going back to the office until mid next year. If then, Mm -hmm. it's a very different environment from people that have either lost their jobs because their their company has shuttered or they are required to do their job to be in a place where they're going to be exposed to lots of people every day whose behaviors of social distancing and mask wearing may be at best uneven. I mean, it's just the experience of the pandemic is so radically different from people in, in the same country, never mind in different countries right now. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Ian Bremmer. He's the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. And we're going to break for just a minute. When we come back and look at how economic inequality is affecting the American response to the pandemic. On our website, by the way, we're going to have more from both Ian and from Megan Scudamari, the science writer who you heard from earlier. That's at innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH Radio, this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I've been talking with the political scientist Ian Bremmer about where the U.S. sits economically after six months of dealing with coronavirus and and where things are headed. And um, let me turn to the question of how our response to the virus looks in context. So I think there's a sense in the U.S. that when you compare how we have done with rich countries in the rest of the world, we've done abysmally. Uh, Is that true? Is that wrong? Do we focus uh, in the U.S. too much on our failures? Well, again, in terms of monetary policy, we've done fantastically well. In terms of economic policy, we have done quite well, better than average, but we're about to do badly uh, because this phase four deal is dead. I mean, our Speaker of our House and our President have not spoken to each other in a year. That is not a good thing. Right. That's that's not the way democracy is supposed to work. And and the, the the incredible polarization in politics in the United States right now is going to make the economic response worse. The health care response yeah. has been poor and it's been poor in part because it's been so politicized. I mean, when you look at the countries that have done well in responding to coronavirus in the last six months, it's interesting. They're all over the political spectrum. There are left wing, there are right wing governments, there are democracies, there are authoritarian states, there are big countries, there are small countries. I mean, anything from Vietnam and Taiwan and Singapore to Norway and Germany to South Korea to Greece to Uruguay. I mean, there, there are a lot of countries around the world that have done well. A lot of, a lot of run by women, people say, but a lot of run by men, too. It's not that. Mm-hmm. It's all of these countries responded quickly and they did not politicize the virus. They led with expertise. They didn't cheerlead. They didn't obfuscate. They didn't panic. They told their people the way it was. And they said, this is serious and we're going to take it seriously. We need to work hard. We're going to work hard. We need to lock down. We're going to lock down. We need to get testing up. We're going to take testing up. And in the United States, that has not happened. Remember after 9-11, The country rallied around President Bush, 92% approval ratings. Mm. After the coronavirus, approval ratings for Trump have stayed almost identical to what they have been all the way through. And you see how increasingly Trump's response is the Democrats are trying to keep you at home, to shut you down. I want to get the economy working again. It is a divided narrative. He even said, if you take the blue states out, our death rate doesn't look so bad. I mean, it's one country. How do you take the blue states out if you're president of the United States? How do you do that? So his biggest, I mean, if you want to go back to what the biggest proximate mistakes were, 
I think, and Trump didn't do everything wrong, right? It's not as if he didn't understand that a pandemic was coming. He did. He makes it very clear. He shut down travel to China when other countries did not. Japan, South Korea, for example, that was a good move uh, with Europe early on. That was a good move, though he should have talked to them about it so they wouldn't have. Although a lot of, didn't a lot of people come in from China after that, like, there were a lot of holes in that fence. Well, yeah, but a lot of them, but keep in mind, a lot of them were, I mean, if they were American citizens or nationals and have a right to be in the U.S., you're not going to cut yeah. them off. There was a, I mean, so we can get into detail around that, but then yeah. if we weren't being political, we would say that that policy was the right thing to do and was was calibrated not to cause political damage as well. So it, it, smart, like any president that did that, Democrat, Republican, you'd say good move. The places where they really screwed up, testing. Uh, we, we didn't have a functional test. The test that we had internally didn't work. There were other tests that were made by like Germany, for example, we could have used, we chose mm. not to. And we were asleep on this for a month while the pandemic is spreading like wildfire in Europe and including in the United States about two weeks later, and we're just not doing anything. And if you're not testing, you just don't know who has this disease. And another big mistake was President Trump politicizing the uh, response of mask wearing and, you know, refusing to lead by example, the White House opposing the uh, U.S. Postal Service, sending five cloth masks to every American citizen saying this is the most effective way to shut it down. Different messages between the president and his, the head of the CDC um, or Dr. Fauci, you know, Dr. Burks. I mean, all of these issues created a divide inside the United States about whether we would trust treatment whether we would trust wearing a mask, whether we're going to trust a vaccine in a country that already is among advanced industrial nations, second to France in terms of anti-vaxxer sentiment. We can't afford to politicize vaccines in this country, and yet we're doing it. And that's been a, that's been a huge mistake by this administration, in my view. And the fact that an election is coming up in November, the timing around that could not be worse in terms of responding to this crisis. So when you look at countries that, you know, have done a good job, you mentioned Taiwan, uh, Germany, my sense, and tell me what your sense is from talking to people, but is that uh, a lot of those countries have actually been able to get back to a more functioning economy, been able to get kids back in school, been able to sort of restart things in a way that... You know, we've done a little bit here, but uh, maybe, you know, their efficiency in the beginning has paid off. Let's see on the economic implications. The United States um, and, and the expected contraction of the U.S. economy this year uh, does not look as bad as the expected contraction across the European Union. Now, keep in mind, we've got all the tech firms. They don't. Our level of unemployment going into this looked more robust. Our economy looked more robust than the European economy did. The Europeans are also dealing with a very messy Brexit, which is not only not over, but has the potential to get worse in the end of this year. So it's complicated by a number of factors that makes it hard to say, oh, the Europeans are coming back. And, and, but I will say that the second waves, the experience of living in Europe, leaving aside the macro state of the economy, the experience of living for the average European, having engaged on the most part 
with tougher lockdowns now appears to be more normalized than the United States. They are experiencing second waves in the UK, in Spain, in France, that is leading to additional lockdowns. But um, more schools, I think, feel comfortable opening levels, certainly levels of hospitalizations and deaths are a lot lower right now in Europe than the United States. And that is, in a sense, the most relevant point is on the healthcare side, having dealt with the first wave of the crisis well in Europe, for the most part, with big exceptions, Sweden, the UK, Italy, for different reasons. The second wave is, generally speaking, not nearly as troublesome as the second wave has been thus far across the United States and across all of the United States, red state and blue state. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this sort of you know, domino effect of this inequality. So I, I see around me, I, you know, uh, I live in the Boston area. I see many private schools open for in-person full-time schooling, but public schools uh, are, many are doing just virtual schooling, or they're maybe doing like a few hours of in-person a week, like six or seven hours. Um, it's a very striking difference. And I wonder, you know, you, t- you talked about inequality, whether this has sort of these long-term impacts that that maybe we don't see right now, but are real. Sure. I mean, you know, if the average person in the United States has, let's say, 15 years of schooling, 14 years of schooling, and they lose one to two, functionally, they lose the experience of that, the socialization, the network effects, uh, a lot of the skills what is that going to do to this generation? A generation that already was going to have a much harder time having access to the right universities, the gatekeepers for the kind of jobs that mattered to build the kind of resumes that they need, the internships, the experiences that allow you to succeed. Of course, I worry very seriously about that. And I see this not only in public schools, I see it in universities too. I mean, wealthier universities can provide a much better experience mm-hmm. for their students and others cannot. It's it's going to be expensive to test everyone adequately in the same way that the U.S. has failed. A lot of pieces of the U.S. are not getting this right. So look at the University of Illinois, where um, they are providing anti-gen tests to every student, every teacher, every member of staff. And that's about 35,000 people in all. Each test costs $10, um, and you're going to need the staff to actually carry that out, too. So this is not a cheap thing to do. Most universities won't be able to do it. And they ended up, you know, the kids came back to school, and within a couple weeks, they had 800 cases because, you know, kids aren't listening. They're not wearing the mask right. They're having parties, whatever it is. But the point is, they knew about all 800 cases. It wasn't 800 cases. There are another... 2000 hiding out that we haven't tested, you actually knew that the exact scale of the case is 800. And so you were able to target that, shut it down and get it running again. That is something that wealthy people are going to be able to do much more effectively as this disease continues to run its course. 
you're going to be able to go uh, get on an international plane. You go to an international conference or a business meeting or go to your place of work because places that are well run and have the resources will be able to provide that testing to everyone. That's more important ultimately in bringing people back into the economy fully than even the vaccine, because the vaccine will not have that level of efficacy. And given that, it won't change behavior in such a dramatic fashion. That's so interesting. So it's so what you're saying is if you are going to a finance conference in Tokyo, that if the conference is well funded, they may say, well, look, you know, we'll just test every single person with like a rapid test on the way in. Like you could imagine this in a few months, potentially, whereas like in a school, if they are completely underfunded, they can't test anybody. And maybe they just don't have kids in school because of that. Yeah. I mean, in other places, they will have kids in school because of that. And then they'll just live yep. with the virus. So I think right. there are three there are three degrees right, of how you deal with this. The highest degree is you're only going to travel in places that you know that you can maintain a bubble, just like the NBA right now, which is functioning quite well mm. because those guys are getting tested every single day. But they're also getting paid on average millions of dollars right. a year. And, you know, they're driving massive revenue for the NBA. And so they're going to put pull every stop. There will be a percentage of the global population that will be able to do their jobs just like the NBA. And they'll be able to interact with other people in places where that is important for them to do so, whether it's in private school or it's even a group of parents that are deciding to, you know, get tutors for their kids mm. um, because otherwise they don't feel comfortable with them with lots of exposure um, or it's in your job or it's at a conference you want to attend. And I've already heard from people that wish me to travel to places in 2021 that are making plans like that. Then you'll have folks who won't have that, and uh, but they, they have money, and they still have their jobs, or they can afford to not have a job for a period of time, and they will just not be sending their kids to school. They will say, I'm staying home, I'm homeschooling my kid, I'm going to stay safe. And that's the second group, and they're going to get hurt much more than that first group. Okay. And then you have the third group, and the third group are folks that cannot afford to not be at work, cannot afford to not send their kids to school right. or, or in countries where they never would have that kind of infrastructure and you don't, you're not going to be able to test people anyway. And, and those people are going to live with the virus and they're going to be exposed to it. And, you know, frankly, some of the poorest countries in the world, like in sub-Saharan Africa, if the average age in your population is 19, you can actually live with the virus and almost nobody is going to get sick or die because it affects much older people. But for most of the world, Living with the virus is truly an unimaginable hardship. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Ian Bremmer. He's the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. When we come back for our last few minutes, we're going to talk about American politics, world health, and some of the powerful secondary effects of coronavirus. You're listening to Innovation Hub from GBH and PRX. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Ian Bremmer about the political and the health and the economic trajectories of coronavirus. We're about six months in here, a little more, and we're looking at what lies ahead. Um, and in our last few minutes, I want to ask you about 
what has been lost in poorer countries. This is not a view that we always get because there's just so much news in this country to focus on. But I remember talking to you months ago, and you said for countries like India, for example, the cost of a lockdown is very real. And that cost might be measured in starvation. Um, So you have to think as a government about what price you're willing to pay to control the virus. And uh, I recently heard the Gates Foundation say malnutrition around the world, it's skyrocketed. Around 40 million more people are in extreme poverty. Uh, Melinda Gates said it's very, very hard to find your way out of extreme poverty once you're there. How do you see this virus having reshaped poorer countries? Uh, it's it's deeply frustrating to see that you know we're in a world where the only reason that people suffer, the only reason that people uh, have malnutrition, is because of political failings. It's not because of economic failings. We have enough food globally. We have enough wealth globally to to feed everyone, to give everyone appropriate health care. But there are massive political failings, and that is um, exacerbated in the conditions of the pandemic. So in sub-Saharan Africa, um, you don't have a lot of people getting sick from coronavirus, but you have a lot of people that are worried about bringing their kids to hospitals. And so as a consequence, basic immunizations, vaccinations are not happening for kids that will, as a consequence, be much more exposed to other dangerous diseases as a second order effect of coronavirus. You have supply chain that has been hit significantly disrupted uh, because of coronavirus, right? I mean, shipping is a problem. Chinese production is a problem. Infrastructure is a problem. And that has, in turn, we in the United States, you remember that there were some limitations and some people weren't able to find bacon Mm, for a period of time because, you know, there were shortages in some types of food that were being sent around because uh, there were large numbers of cases in some of the meat processing plants. And they're, they're very large and they're very small numbers of, you know, it's a, very much a just-in-time supply chain. So if you break one thing, there are, there are knock-on effects. We can't get bacon, so what? But if that supply chain effect uh, impacts you in a poorer country, you suddenly can't get enough to eat. Prices skyrocket. You can't afford what's at sale in your local grocer or they're out of things. Um, malnutrition becomes a very serious issue. And again, as, as you've seen from Melinda Gates, who spoke quite articulately about this um, and forcefully about this just, um, just a, a, a few weeks ago, we're talking about tens of yes. millions of people now around the world, additional people that uh, Bill Gates would, would have told you, you if you'd met him any time in the last 10 years. And there was a lot of pessimism about where politics is going, where the world's going, and you know, media headlines are pretty negative. He was always very upbeat. Look at how many people mm-hmm. we're taking out of poverty. Look at how we are expanding lifespans. Look at how 90% of kids around the world are getting immunized before their first year. You know, look at how we're bringing infant mortality down. He had all these stats down. His favorite book from about five years ago was written by this wonderful Swedish demographer who recently passed away, Hans Rosling. It was called Factfulness. And it was this, it was pages and pages, pages and pages about just wonderful news of how humanity increasingly globalized was able to unlock human capital and bring better lives to people around the world. You talk to Bill Gates today. He can't say that. 
because globalization has shifted in trajectory. We're getting it more wrong. The last couple of years for humanity has actually not shown progress in terms of well-being and absolute poverty, numbers of refugees, countries that are democratic and open and free. We actually haven't been bending the arc of history towards progress. One that the vaccination story is like a heart-stopping one that hears the whole world focused on a vaccine for coronavirus. But in so much of the world, so many people will die because of vaccine. Like they are not getting vaccines. We actually have like we have. They're tested. They're good. And people aren't getting them because, you know, either, like you said, they're afraid to go to the doctor or there's supply chain issue or they don't have the money or whatever it is. But it's like it's incredible to think that that could cause a tremendous number of deaths. And here we are thinking about this other vaccine. And then and then get back to um, the fact that we're working on over 100 different vaccines and we're not working together. We're not yeah. sharing data. Right. I mean, the Russians have announced their Sputnik vaccine and Putin says, I gave it to my daughter. And it, they're not sharing any of the information about side effects. And they're rolling it out with scientists having tested it on themselves and not going through phase three yet. And I mean, every other epidemiologist in the world is saying this is a disaster. This is dangerous. Uh, the Chinese saying they're testing it on their military. Again, right. not appropriate um, for phase three trials. We have better science than that. I mean, in the United States, I will tell you, the politicization that we're seeing from the president against the head of the CDC on vaccines makes me more cautious about wanting to take the vaccine myself when it is available. And I am the farthest thing from an anti-vaxxer, but I would want to make sure that there is, you know, a consensus of medical and scientific approval for something. I'm not just going to take my government's immediate word for it. It's amazing that I would say something like that. Five years ago would have been inconceivable for, uh, you know, a, an educated American to question whether FDA approval for a vaccine would be something they would need to look into, dive under the hood. That means stuff of conspiracy theories. Right. And yet, and yet we increasingly have a politicization of what is and is not a basic fact, basic science around how we are dealing with this disease. That is not where we want to be. So let me have you look ahead a little bit because you, you mentioned China. I mean, they are not only deep into testing vaccines, uh, but uh, the United Arab Emirates has already approved a Chinese vaccine for emergency use. They are doing a lot of testing in Indonesia, which is hurting a lot from the just uh, almost like poverty and starvation related impacts of uh, coronavirus. Are we headed towards millions of people getting untested vaccines in the next few months? It feels like it. It's certainly possible that we will have large numbers of people that are getting vaccines that you would not be recommended to take in an advanced industrial democracy. That is certainly plausible. I know that many of the agreements that are being made with the Chinese and the Russians internationally are being made on the condition of them successfully going through phase three trials. Okay. So the headlines, you got to dig under the headlines for okay. some of that. Um, and and I also think that, the you know, when the Chinese and the Russians are initially announcing this, 
is not necessarily what they're planning. You know, they have to do more work before they export. So I, I there's I'm more concerned about the way this affects how humanity thinks about the vaccines and whether they're willing to take them and misinformation than I am about uh, millions and millions of people that are going to die because they took a bad vaccine. If we did this right, scientifically, you'd have a lot more people that would be comfortable actually taking the vaccines that are being distributed. And that, that I think, is important. But I also think that um, the fact that the Chinese are developing these vaccines, and you know about 50% of all vaccines expected to be available in the next 12 to 18 months have been bought up by a handful of advanced industrial democracies that represent about 13% of the global population. So let me say that again. 50% of all the vaccines Mm -hmm. as of now that are expected to be produced by the end of 2021 have already been bought. They've already been secured by a small number of the world's wealthiest countries. Now, if you're China, that means that you can export your vaccine to some of the poorest countries that otherwise aren't going to get any, that's going to align those countries a lot more with you. That is an important piece of political leverage that the Chinese will have over some of the world's poorest countries. And the same way that you've had a lot of people worried about, oh, Belt and Road and Chinese investment, and they're locking up all these countries that are going to align with Beijing, they won't work with America. The, the vaccine has the potential to accelerate that. What do you see in the U.S.? I mean, do you think people are going to hold out for a vaccine? Is the pain, is the economic pain and the pain that people are feeling in terms of hunger and eviction, is that going to at some point lead to people just saying, well, whatever. I mean, we need to kind of keep moving forward, even if there is a danger of getting this virus. I just wonder what you see unfolding here. Oh, look, I think that it's such a hardship for parents uh, not to be able to send their kids to school when they're working two jobs to make ends meet. It's impossible. So there's it's you know, I I think that, of course, I I think they'll do that. I also think that just the fact that people have been locked down in some cases in some cities for months and months and months and they're tired and they want to see their friends and they're depressed and they want to go out for a night. They make them look. I I have a friend uh, of a friend, someone I'm pretty close to. Um, and, um, this is a very, I don't want to say who it is, but this is a senior policy official, um, who uh, is, uh, about 65 years old and in pretty good health, who is usually very, very careful and messed up, messed up because he was just tired. He just wanted to see some friends. He's like, oh, it's just one thing. It'll be fine. And ended up getting coronavirus with uh, and, and, and a lung that failed and has spent a couple weeks in the hospital now and looks like he's going to recover, but could have died. Hmm. And I think you're going to hear a lot of stories like that. Um, but, but I also think that the purpose of these lockdowns, so if we want to get away from the individual stories and just hmm. look at the country as a whole, The purpose of the lockdowns was to give us some time. Back in March, we did not know much about this disease. Back in March, I was in New York City and I was watching what was happening in Northern Italy with hospitals being overwhelmed because everyone that had symptoms was going to hospitals. And this is a wealthy part of the country with good health care. And suddenly all of their doctors are getting sick 
and the hospitals don't function. They have to triage who does and doesn't get care. If you're older, if you've got a pre-existing condition, sorry, we can't treat you for coronavirus. And the death numbers spike. And you see five, 10 times as much death per capita as you would have in other places because the hospitals fail. So we look at that in the United States and we say, we need some time. We don't have personal protective equipment for our mm-hmm. doctors, for our frontline workers. We don't have enough beds. We don't have enough ventilators. Right. We need to lock down so we can learn about this virus and that we have time to build this stuff out. Well, you know, it's now been six months. Mm-hmm. You know what? We, we found out that we don't need as many ventilators because high flow oxygen as a treatment can keep people off ventilators. And also that plus steroids means that a lot of the hospitalizations are shorter. The hospitalizations are shorter. You don't need as many hospital beds. So, you know, we know that, you know, wearing masks um, is a a way to much more effectively protect people. A lot more Americans are wearing masks now than were six months ago. We understand social distancing protocols. Not everyone's Mm -hmm. doing it, but we're doing it better than we were. So the fact that we have now learned a lot more about the virus has allowed us, um, even if we open the economy fully, we're going to experience less hospitalization and most importantly, less mortality than we would have if we hadn't engaged in those lockdowns six months ago. So I do think it's important to understand for all the people out there like, we gotta be listening to Fauci. Yeah, we listen to Fauci. We have to listen to Fauci about the disease, but we also have to listen to the economists about how badly these lockdowns are affecting us. And there's a trade-off. And the trade-off actually changes over time. It's not the same now as it was six months ago. So your policy response, I mean, you know, a good politician should say that when the information changes, they change their policies. And I, I, I believe that the parameters for opening should actually be looser now than they were when we didn't know anything about the virus and we, when, we, when we didn't have the resilience in our hospitals and with our frontline workers. Ian Bremmer is a political scientist. He's the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Ian, as always, thanks so much. Really a pleasure. If you want to hear this entire conversation or you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can get it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We will also have more on our website about the recent report from the Gates Foundation, which Ian and I discussed earlier. It showed that nearly 40 million people have entered what's called extreme poverty because of the pandemic. Links to learn more about all of this are at innovationhub.org. And before we go today, last week we looked at the ways in which technology shapes us and our lives and our relationships. And we're not just talking Tinder and OkCupid here. Once we've built these tools, whether they're farming implements or computers, they begin to shape us in really powerful ways. So it's not a one-way deal where we just build the tools we want. Once we've built these things, they start to change our lives in ways that are, are really tough to predict or even imagine at the moment that we're, we're just building the tools themselves. That's Deborah Sparr, the former president of Barnard College and author of the book, Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. She argues that from the washing machine to the car, from birth control pills to IVF, once we create a technology that makes our lives easier and more convenient, it immediately becomes a two-way street. And that goes pretty far back. 
prior to the plow, by which I really mean prior to the development of, of agriculture, our ancestors lived as hunters and gatherers. You know, everybody knows that. We, we foraged for our food. We ate the fish we could find and the berries we could collect. And there doesn't seem to have been any institution like we now think of as marriage. So that's kind of the starting argument that we now think of marriage as a natural structure. But it's actually rather new in the, in the broad scope of history. So if the plow helped create marriage, we wanted to know... How has technology changed your relationships, maybe in unexpected ways? So where, where my family farms, it's all dry land. So there's no irrigation. And there's not much that you can grow there. Um, you know, they get about 15 inches of rain a year. Elizabeth Abbey is from Spokane, Washington. And the farm that she grew up on has been in the family for six generations. Our discussion about agricultural technology changing human relationships... It resonated. She says, over the years, the tech that her family and other farmers use on crops, it's gotten bigger and better and faster, which can be great for increasing yield. But there have been some unintended consequences. And the flip side of that, then, is that because yields are so high, you flood the market with a lot of product, then the price is going to go down. And so then you need more land to make, make a living off of. Um, which means that you need to make the combines and all that technology bigger. So it's kind of this vicious cycle. (laughs) So technology is driving a need for more land, which drives the need for more technology, and on and on it goes. And all of that means larger farms with fewer and fewer farmers running them, which has taken a toll. It used to be much more, I I feel like it was more of a community thing where, you know, the whole town would kind of shut down during harvest time of like everybody was working harvest. Um, And you had kids, you know, teenagers, once they got their license, they would be driving wheat trucks um, during harvest and making money that way. Well, now um, most all farmers have semi trucks that they drive. So a teenager is not going to be able to drive that. So yeah, it's definitely impacted the fabric of kind of the community and, and what the typical summertime harvest would be. Thanks to everyone who reached out to tell us your stories. We loved hearing from you. Thanks also to the team who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Caitlin Falds. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.